Take your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We'll be back in our study of the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 5. Won't make you stand for the reading of the Word like we did at the beginning of the service. I think it's a very natural thing, really, to go from a wonderful conference where we've been featuring missionaries, some five missionary families or individuals, and they were committed to going forth to proclaim the greatest story ever told. Amen? The story of Jesus' love, His dying on the cross, and to go from that telling our emphasis on the greatest story ever told to getting back to a sermon series on the greatest sermon ever preached, that's not a leap. Those two things go together. I said it a few weeks ago, and I'm not trying to hype what I'm saying in these series of messages, but I don't apologize for saying it. We need this sermon, not the one I'm preaching today necessarily, but the Sermon on the Mount. We need it now more than ever. And that's not just because it's inspired, and the Bible says all Scripture that is inspired is also profitable, but we need it for this reason. We are living in the last days. Of course, we've been in them for quite a while. But I think we're in the last of the last days. And men are fabricating their own righteousness based on the changing whims and fads of our shifting culture instead of on the absolutes of the Word of God and the attributes of the person of God. I mean, it's happening with lightning speed. The changing positions on morality in the professing evangelical church ought to alarm us. Has God changed? Has the Bible changed? Well, why are churches changing? Let's make sure that we really hear and heed the Word of God today. Verse 27, Matthew 5. Ye have heard that it was said by them of old time, Thou shalt not commit adultery. Verse 28, Jesus says, But I say unto you, that whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if I write, I offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee, for it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if thy right hand offend thee, cut it off and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. It hath been said, Whosoever shall put away his wife, the word means divorce, let him give her a writing of divorcement. But I, Jesus says, I say unto you, that whosoever shall put away his wife, saving for the cause of fornication, causeth her to commit adultery, and whosoever shall marry her that is divorced, committeth adultery. Now, looking back a little bit before where we began reading today, in verse 21, and continuing through the end of the chapter, Jesus gives the body of the sermon. Any sermon, I think you know, has to have some kind of introduction. It has a 
a body, and it usually has a conclusion. It has a text to begin with. The text for the Sermon on the Mount is verse 20, if you look at it again. For I say unto you that except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, ye shall in no case, no exception, enter into the kingdom of heaven. That's the text. And then beginning in the subsequent verses, Jesus gets into the body of the message through the end of the chapter. Six times in these verses, beginning in verse 21 through the end of the chapter, Jesus says, ye have heard that it hath been said. Six times he adds, but I say. He doesn't contradict Moses. He doesn't contradict the Pentateuch. But he does contradict what the Pharisees said about the law in their false representation of it. The Pharisees who were listening in here They were smugly complacent with an external righteousness. But Jesus is concerned, and we'll see it more than ever in our our message today, Jesus is concerned about purity in the heart. And so he minces no words here in saying that. I want to tell you, he shocked the Pharisees when he said these things. He turned the seventh commandment on its head as far as they were concerned. He caught them completely off guard. They were not humored. They were exposed. They were left without defense. Our Lord's main concern is still for the purity of His followers. That's what He prayed for in John chapter 17 that we might be sanctified through the truth. That's what He died for on the cross. And that purity extends to the body, the human body, the fleshly body, and to marriage. I remind you again, there is nothing innately sinful about the human body. Sometimes we say, and we look at our, some part of our body say, this old wicked flesh. No, we don't mean the body, I hope. I hope we realize that's our sin nature that is manifested through the body. The idea that the human body is innately sinful, that's a monkish idea. That's not from the Bible. God made our bodies. Jesus lived in a body for 33 years and never sinned one time. And he said, and what he said, uh, about the donkey that he asked his disciples to procure for his triumphal entry. If anyone would ask them why they're loosing the donkey, what he said and told them to say could be said about the body. The Lord hath need of it. The Lord hath need of our bodies. For the Christian, the body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that body that God has given us that we can, yea, we must glorify God, as Paul said to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20. Now, in these verses we're looking at today, verses 27 through 32, Christ said some pretty startling and controversial things. And the problem of many Christians, and I hope it's not true of anybody here today, but the problem with many 
Christians, even independent fundamental Baptists like we are, is they get fixated on the controversial aspects of things. And they make a theological football or volleyball. They go back and forth about, what does this commentator say? What does this one say? I hope we won't get sidetracked by that. I hope we'll look at the main point. And the main point Jesus is making is he is raising the bar on moral purity. So please don't distort this into something else. Jesus says basically three things in this passage, verses 27 through 32. In the first place, he equates the look of lust with adultery. He turns the seventh commandment essentially on its head when he says in verse 27, ye have heard that it hath been said by them of old time, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that is exactly what it says in the, in the Ten Commandments. He's not just giving a gloss on the Pentateuch or on the Decalogue. Then he goes on to say, but I say unto you. So he's setting up a contrast. That whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. Oh, how the Pharisees prided themselves in their fastidiousness in keeping, they thought, this commandment. They had such an outward external righteousness that if they saw a woman coming down on their side of the street, they would cross the street, look the other way, close their eyes, and hopefully bump into a wall so they had a bruise to show for it. I'm not exaggerating. Jesus raised the bar big time when he internalized this Sabbath commandment. That leads me to say, and to make a big point out of it, Jesus always aims for the heart, doesn't he? Son, give me thine heart. Let thine heart keep, let thine eyes observe my ways. The wise man Solomon said in Proverbs 23, 26, and it's no coincidence that in the following verses in that same chapter, Proverbs 23, uh, he talks about moral purity and avoiding the snare of the strange woman. Giving me thine heart was applied in a moral context. Now, why does Jesus focus on the internal, the matter of the heart? Well, perhaps the greatest reason is touched on in what he said in Matthew 15, verse 19. Listen, I won't ask you to turn there. We'll turn to some other passages today. In Matthew 15, 19, Jesus said, For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, fornications, plural, adulteries, plural, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Notice those two words designating moral sins and the fact that they're in the plural. They come from the heart. So does it stand to reason that holiness stems from the heart? Purity comes from the heart? You see, the scribes and the Pharisees went by the letter of the law, and so they reduced this seventh commandment to a mere, referring to a mere physical act of adultery. To the total neglect of the spirit of this commandment, it never dawned on them, as it did on Paul, as he wrote in Romans chapter 7, as a Christian, by the way, as a converted man, he wrote in Romans chapter 7 that it was the tenth commandment that slew him. 
Thou shalt not covet. As Saul of Tarsus, the unconverted but zealous and self-righteous Pharisee, he could honestly say that he was blameless outwardly. He could tell a, a monarch later, I have lived before God in all good conscience. He wasn't lying. Let me smash a theory that's been around for a long time. He wasn't the least bit convicted by Stephen before he got saved. He thought he was doing God a service to help with Stephen's martyrdom. Well, he got real quiet. It just makes a whole lot better sermon to be able to say Stephen really got to him, but he didn't. Saul, the self-righteous, zealous Pharisee, when he met Jesus on the Damascus road, a whole new spiritual force hit him for the first time. I believe in the way of the Master, and we've taught it here, but that wasn't the order in the, for the life of the Apostle Paul. He wasn't convicted before he got saved. The only thing he was convicted about was on the Damascus road was that Jesus was the Messiah. Who art thou, Lord? Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? That, that marked the change. And then God began to work on him with the spiritual force of the law. And in some way, it was that tenth commandment that got him. Why is it we don't hear that anymore? It's plain as day in the Word of God. This has always been the case, beloved. This is not some New Testament twist. The prophet Isaiah relayed the, the words of Jehovah in chapter 57, verse 15. And again, if you listen, I'll have you turning to other places. Isaiah 57, verse 15, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and lofty place with him that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. God is always aiming for the heart. God is looking for humility of heart. He puts down the thought for the deed, whether it's good or evil, not just evil. When David was willing to build the temple, even though it wasn't God's will to, for him to do so, and, and he let him know that, he said, for as much as it was in thine heart to do it, thou didst well. David's getting a reward in heaven as if he had built the temple. God puts down the thought for the deed, whether for good or evil. In spiritualizing the seventh commandment, Jesus just reinforced the very purpose for the Ten Commandments, and I hope you know what they are. The Bible says in Romans chapter 5, verse 20, by the law is the knowledge of sin. Paul added in Romans 7, verse 13, he said, sin by the commandment became exceeding sinful. Oh, how we need that in America in 2023. 
he would have to deny himself and take up his cross daily. To whom did he say that? Was this just an elite group of followers to lead them on to the next step so they would be great leaders when he was gone? Uh Uh-uh. He said those words to the multitudes, to them all, the Bible says. He rebuked the sons of thunder, James and John, for putting their mother up to asking him for preferment for them in his kingdom. And he said, whosoever will be chief among you, let him be your servant. The look of lust is selfish, and it's sinful. Why is it sinful? We're going to peel back the layers here. We're going to get down to the heart of this thing. I'm aware of the fact we have some children. I'm going to be careful how I say it. Why is the look of lust sinful? It's selfish, and because it's selfish, it is devoid of love. Did you realize that our tie to Christ permits no desire without love? Even as we'll see as we get through this fifth, uh, fifth chapter a little bit later in verse 44, we are to love our enemies. Our actions toward our enemies are to be dictated by love. And there is a huge difference between lust and love. Most Americans don't know it. I hope you do. One is self-serving, the other is altruistic. The world is so confused on this point because they don't know Christ who is love incarnate. They've never had the love of God shed abroad, literally gushed forth in their hearts by the Holy Spirit. True discipleship is self-denial. And at the point that our selfish desires take over, are you listening? Even if it's a single split-second look, discipleship with Jesus is broken at that point. We're devoid of love when we go through the look of lust. Secondly, it's sinful because... The look of lust is devoid of faith. When we act, or in our imagination act out, something to gratify ourselves, we show that we do not believe, are you listening? We do not believe that God can grant joy 100-fold and make up for self-denial. When we leave house or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or lands, for Jesus' sake in the Gospels, as we read in Matthew 10, verse 30. We fail to believe the promise that Jesus associates with that for anybody who does it. God's going to make it up to them a hundredfold, lands, and houses, and, 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 and children, and parents in this life. He's speaking spiritually, of course. With persecutions, and in the life to come, life everlasting. We do not trust what is invisible. We trust only what's visible. That's our problem. And what does Paul say in Romans 14, verse 23? Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So the look of lust is sin because it's devoid of faith. Let's face it. God has made beautiful provision in marriage for the need of man and woman. 
But that desire for the forbidden fruit results often not just in a casual glance, but in a lustful leer, and that is not of faith. And so it's sin. We've already seen in the sixth beatitude back in chapter 5, verse 8, well, same chapter, that when we are impure in mind and heart, we don't see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. But when we're impure, we're not going to see God. We don't see Him who is invisible, and so we don't endure like Moses did, the Bible says in Hebrews. We lust after the visible like Esau did, and he's called a profane man. The look of lust, God puts it down as adultery. I don't care whether you're a professing Christian or a person of the world. It gets even more intense. You say, preacher, you're, you love to be heavy. No, I'm just telling you what the Bible says. I don't think Jesus would have said this laughing. Secondly, Jesus threatened lusting people with hell. You can't cut it any other way, folks. Let's not try to explain away the unequivocal words of Christ just to defend our notion and our doctrine of eternal security. Christ said in verse 29, And if thy right eye offend thee, pluck it out and cast it from thee. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish, and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. He says the same thing about the hand. It would be better to cut it off than that your whole body should be cast into hell. The Greek word for hell is Gehenna. That's the ultimate lake of fire, where the unsaved dead will be cast forever after they are judged. So the obvious question is, are we to take these words literally? If we're having a problem with temptation through the gateway of the eyes, are we to pluck them out? Are we to amputate our hand that takes something to itself that doesn't belong to us? I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. Because let's face it, folks, just because you maim yourself doesn't mean you're going to kill lust. Did you know that blind people can experience desires that we naturally think are aroused only by sight? Jesus is telling us in the most graphic of terms, here it is, that we must take drastic measures to fight lust. And if we don't, we lose our souls forever. Don't explain away this passage. Take it at face value. We fall into the category of the unrighteous who shall not inherit the kingdom of God. As Paul said to the Corinthians, be not, they were a lustful people. Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, and he lists a bunch of other things, shall inherit the kingdom of God. Jesus is not teaching that we're saved by works here. Please listen to what I'm about to say. Because so many independent Baptists don't get this. 
He is not teaching that we're saved by works, but he is teaching that professing Christians who have a view of salvation that disconnect it from real life and put themselves beyond the reach of biblical warnings are deceived and are on the broad way that leads to destruction. I'm glad you didn't say amen. That's not, not, not anything to say amen to. That's awful. Lust defiles, and nothing that defileth shall enter heaven. That's what we read in the, almost the last chapter of the Bible, if you want to turn there. Revelation 21, verse 27. Last verse of the next to the last chapter. Speaking of the new Jerusalem, this city that descends from God out of heaven, and there shall in no wise, Jesus loved to say that, didn't he? There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. If God let one single unrenewed, even though it may be a professing believer into heaven, it would ruin it for everybody else. Heaven is a prepared place for a prepared people, yes, a perfected people. Let's face it, sin does two awful things. Sin perverts, and then sin destroys. Sin takes the precious gifts that God has given, like the eye and like the hand, and it lets them become a nuisance and a stumbling block and a hindrance, turning good into evil. Sin perverts, and then sin destroys. We read in the book of James, chapter 1, that sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Paul tells Timothy, referring to widows, but this is true across the board, the one who is living in pleasure is dead while she liveth. Though Satan deceives us into thinking that the experience is the ultimate. Sin always tends towards death. But heaven is a place of life. Eternal life. Now if you don't remember anything else I say, I hope you remember what I'm about to say. The next point, if you're following the outline, we dare not be cavalier in dealing with temptation. You've got to fight fire with fire. You can't afford to be careless and indifferent when it comes to temptation. The great Puritan writer and scholar, and on my 10th anniversary as pastor here, you gave me a whole set of 16 books, I think it was, maybe 20. I've been going through them very carefully. I hadn't got too far. Books by John Owen, the great Puritan. Probably the thing he's most remembered for saying is this in his book sin and temptation he said be killing sin or sin will be killing you and even though jesus is not saying that we should literally pluck out our eye or cut off our hand he is telling us to deal with sin and temptation just as drastically as if we had a cancerous eye or a leprous hand Some of you remember in the news, I think this has happened in a raft as well, but in 2003, a hiker named Aaron Ralston, who was very physically fit, had his right hand 
crushed against a canyon wall by an 800-pound boulder when he was hiking. Couldn't move with one hand. After five days, he ran out of food. He knew he was going to have to do something drastic. The arm that was pinned against the canyon started to decompose. Circulation had stopped. This is substantiated. This is not just his word. He broke his radius and ulna bones by using torque against his trapped arm. With some tubing that he had in his pocket that he could get to with a free arm, he made a tourniquet. Then with a crude pocket knife and pliers, he amputated his own arm. And with superhuman strength, repelled with one arm down 65 feet till he could get help and helicopter evacuation, he lost 40 pounds and 25% of his blood and testified later that if he had done that day earlier, he would have died. He would have bled to death. That really happened. And people have heard it said then, and we probably are thinking now, how extreme, but yet how heroic. And all I can say is, should we be any less alarmed and drastic about ridding ourselves of the sin that does so easily beset us and is rotting away our spiritual vitality? Please don't water down Jesus' words here. He threatened lusting people with hell. And you know what? The other New Testament writers agreed with him. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.11 that the passions of our flesh war against our souls. It's a mortal combat. It's a fight to the finish. Paul said in Colossians 3.5 and 6 that on account of fornication, impurity, passion, and evil desire and covetousness, the wrath of God is coming. And the wrath of God is far more fearful than the wrath of all the nations of the world put together. We don't agree with John Piper on a number of things, but I tell you, he's very helpful here. John Piper urges all believers, and he has for a long time, several years, he urges all believers when contemplating images that arouse lust to fight back with a counter image in their mind. And he said, you better start doing it quick, within five seconds of the image being placed before you. Otherwise, it'll be indelibly impressed upon your thoughts and imagination. And he said, by far the most effective counter image for your mind to gaze on and think about is Christ on the cross. We often make remarks about this when we observe the Lord's table. One of the reasons we need to observe the Lord's table regularly. Piper says this, and I quote about Christ on the cross, see his lacerated back, 39 lashes left little flesh intact. He heaves with his breath up and down against the rough vertical beam of the cross. Each breath puts splinters into the lacerations. Our Lord gasps. From time to time, he screams out with intolerable pain. You say, how do you know he did that? Because that's what you would have done. That's what I would have done. 
He pushes up with his feet to give some relief to his wrists, but the bones and nerves in his pierced feet crush against each other with anguish, and so he screams out again. There's no relief. His throat is raw from screaming and thirst. He loses his breath and feels that he's suffocating, and suddenly his body involuntarily gasps for air, and all the injuries unite in pain again. Is that an exaggeration? No. You know what we need to take from that? Every scream and every spasm was to kill my lust. Jesus died for my purity. You say, where does it say that? Well, I'm glad you asked. Would you turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 14? Titus 2, 14. Bible says, Paul is writing, who, referring to Christ, in the previous verse, our Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people, that means a people for his own possession, zealous of good works. Peter echoes that same thought in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, referring to Christ, who his own self bare our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. And I'm serious as a heart attack when I say, folks, how can we be half-hearted in our struggle with sin? When it's the same sin that drove the spikes into Jesus' hands and feet, and pressed the crown of thorns into his lovely brow, and it's the same sin that triggered the taunts and the jeers from the gawking crowd below. I'm telling you, we are engaged in a mind war, and we must fight and push back and be totally oblivious to what people think, whether they think we're cool or whether they think we're extreme. Someone has said this, The point is not that true Christians always succeed in every battle, because we don't. The issue is that we resolve to fight, and we don't make peace with sin. We're not willing to peacefully coexist with it. We make war. And when we are tempted with horrifying sin, are we too embarrassed, are we too self-conscious to put some equally horrifying thought before us like I just described? Well, then we're just cavalier. And Jesus said, if you don't fight lust, you're not going to go to heaven. I didn't say that. The third thing, I'll just touch on this. I won't be able to give an exhaustive treatment, but it's in the same vein, and don't think of it any other way. Jesus permitted divorce, but he did not mandate it. Verses 27 through 32 are the most misunderstood and controversial in the Bible. Many pastors and writers refuse to touch them because somebody's bound to be offended. May I just say Jesus is not giving this teaching to throw a guilt trip on anybody who happens to be divorced. And you heard me talk about that recently. But he's not changing the subject here just because this is a hot button issue. Remember, he's concerned about purity in our hearts so that we can see God. Moral purity. So please note two indisputable facts. 
that fall into the same vein as what we've been saying about purity of heart. And then I'm done. The Pharisees misrepresented Moses on divorce. They were not interested in the lease in the divine standard for marriage. They were looking for loopholes. They appealed to Moses' teaching in Deuteronomy chapter 24, and I'll have you turn there and just look at one verse. Can't look at the whole passage, but if you can turn there quickly, keep your finger in, in our text passage there in Matthew 5. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1. When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes. Underscore that word favor. That is variously uh, interpreted and and rendered um, indecency. She finds no favor. She finds indecency in his eyes because he's found some uncleanness, indecency in her. Then let him write her a bill or a certificate of divorcement and give it in her hand and send her out of his house. Oh, the Pharisees, that's the only thing they wanted to talk about. Even though they were legalistic and strict constructionists when it came to other matters, when it came to divorce, they were liberals. Let's not get preoccupied with, and it's so easy to do this, what are the scriptural grounds for divorce? That is secondary. What is God's priority and position? Malachi 2 verse 16, the Lord God hateth putting away. He hates divorce. It violates a sacred type. Marriage is a beautiful picture of Christ's love for his bride, the church. And don't you know, he will never cast her off. Thank God for that. Divorce always causes heartache and scars. Yes, God permits it. God permits divorce in certain instances, but even then it's the lesser of two evils. The Pharisees misrepresented Jesus on divorce. Secondly, Jesus refused to take sides, but he uttered a stronger standard. And so we need to turn to the parallel passage in Matthew chapter 19, which makes this clear. In verse 3, Matthew 19, the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, trying to trap him, and saying unto him, is it lawful for a man to put away or to divorce his wife for every cause? Means any reason? By their mere asking this question, the Pharisees were giving themselves away. This was an obvious reference to the two prevailing schools of thought at the time. Many of you have studied this. You know this. There was a school of Rabbi Shammai, the conservative, who made allowance for divorce only on the grounds of adultery. There was the school of the Rabbi Hillel, the liberal, who broadened the woman's offense to matters as trivial as if she spoiled dinner for her husband or spoke disrespectfully of, of his parents. He could divorce her. And of course, it was Hillel's looser construction that ruled the day. Jesus didn't fall for the trap. He refused to take sides. But instead, he drew a sharp contrast with his own stronger standard in chapter 19, verse 8, where he says, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. Verse 9, and I say unto you, whosoever shall put away his wife except it be for fornication, that's a very 
inclusive word, not just adultery, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. According to Jesus, the Old Testament is on the side of upholding the sacredness of the marriage vows rather than encouraging divorce. That's the intent of God. Yes, as we said recently, and in this matter, as in several others, like the matter of slavery, the matter of the treatment of captives and so forth, what God did not ordain, He regulated. So He permits divorce for marital unfaithfulness, for the hardness of men's hearts, lest a worse situation evolve. But please know, He never mandates divorce. He never commands divorce. I'm not going to go further with that today. I don't want to get off on the secondary matters. Let me close by saying Jesus was holy, and He expects the same of His followers, us. He's concerned about the heart. The heart's where sin comes from, as we read in Matthew or Luke chapter 15, verse 9. The heart is where sin comes from, and the heart is where purity must start. And Jesus says today what He said in the first century, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see who? God. You know why they'll see Him? That's who they're looking for. They're not looking for loopholes. Let's pray. Father, Help us not to be Pharisees. Help us not to ask, is it wrong? But will it glorify God? Please give us a passion for purity, for holiness. May the gaze of our eyes and the desires of our hearts and our love for our spouses be pure and Christ-like and above reproach In the midst of a wicked and adulterous generation, if Jesus said that about his generation, what would he say about our X-rated society? But you said we are to shine forth as lights in this dark world. Oh, help us to do that. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen.